Hello, my name is Barbara Avila, and this is my Synergy Autism podcast, where I bring people together to share and communicate regarding autism. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud, where we have other podcasts that we know you'll love. I am here to share with you a conversation between a friend of mine, Christy Pretty Franzek, and I, and we thought that you might find it interesting. So we're sharing it here in this podcast. Christy supports teams across the United States who are delivering intervention to young children. She was asked how to best support a preschool child with autism. Actually, she ran across two of them in her work who became extremely distressed when not being held. So these are little guys, four years old, who need to be held all the time. Otherwise, they really struggle and get extremely distressed. And you can imagine that poor child who is too frightened or overwhelmed and a teacher who is beautifully supportive, but not only has her arms that are going to get tired, but also a whole classroom of preschoolers to figure out how to run the classroom and provide quality intervention to the other students as well. So I realized in reflecting on our conversation that we didn't actually discuss the critical first step that I want to mention of having the teacher take really good care of herself or himself. So to be available and curious about ways to bring curiosity to life in the child. So please take a moment, maybe even pause this podcast to ponder for a moment how you are caring for yourself so that you can bring your own curiosity to today and even to this podcast. And if listening to our musings today makes you more curious, you can join us live at this year's Division of Early Childhood Conference in early October, or check out our website at curiosity2u.com. That's curiosity2, the T-O-Y-O-U, all spelled out, dot com. Thank you and enjoy our conversation. Hopefully it'll help you. I have been working with some teams around the country, and interestingly, the same scenario came up once in Alaska and once in Virginia, but the exact same scenario. And these were preschool teams that were working with a four-year-old, different four-year-olds that have diagnoses of autism spectrum disorder. I don't know a lot, but the way they describe the child is so dysregulated. And when we look at the self-regulation rubric and we're in the very first column about things that infants are doing around self-soothing, they would say to me, what comes before this first column? So they're saying that the child has such difficulty with self-soothing that they literally must hold the child in order to keep them from crying. And so their question that they wanted us to kind of explore was when you have a child that's kind of that upset, dysregulated, whatever the word, you might help me put some label on it. I like to equate that to when you're really not feeling well mm-hmm. <laughs> in general, like you, your body is just not feeling well, you have the flu or whatever. You All you can do at that point is just get to homeostasis for your body, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to just take care of what's going on with me. It's not a time where you can outreach and explore and it's not a time you can barely regulate yourself. It's all about biological homeostasis at that point. So sometimes I hear myself saying this too. It's not that the child has conscious awareness that they have this, but their body has sort of like taken over and said, I need to get your systems regulated right just like if you were working through a fever your body's really gonna slow you down because it's using all this energy right so this child 
its body internally, if we could see it, is working really hard at some things. Yeah, I mean, that might not be the whole story, and I'm not sure that it just means that we give up and we then like go, oh, okay, this child is having such a hard time with that, that we don't challenge them and figure out ways to help them out yeah. of that. When I read your question on email, I did some thinking about that, and that was my first thing was, so, yeah, well, we want to, our inclination is to take care of them and to help them like they're doing and holding them. Yes. But we can't stay there, right? That's what they're saying. They're like, it's impossible. They have other kids in the classroom. And the problem is, is the minute they set the child down, they escalate to where it's worse than when they had to hold them, right? So they're, yeah. they're limited in what they can do. So they're just trying to figure out what's the next stepping stone. And they clearly understood it, that it wasn't the child trying to get attention or just wanting to be, you know, coddled all day. Like they didn't have a misperception yeah. of it. They also wanted to say, but we can't do this forever. <laughs> how, right. how am I helping this child if I just hold them all day? So it sounds like they're already kind of along the our usual stream of thinking about why first before we figure out what to do and that yeah. kind of making this assumption that this child is probably neurologically and biologically in a fight or flight stress response right right for right. whatever reason that doesn't for whatever I mean, reason the fact that you talked about that the teachers are having to hold them I learned actually a few years ago I might have shared this with you before how much our auditory processing has to do with um, we orient ourselves by our auditory processing like where we are in space and it's developmental so developmentally we process that and we figure that out so can you imagine if you only could know where you were in space if somebody was holding you mm. because an environment was visually or auditorily kind of overwhelming so that's also something to think about with autism in particular those two systems get kind of squirrely or underdeveloped early and they develop later so just it could be you know from an environmental standpoint of just doing some things like turning the lights down keeping you know somehow if there's any environmental arrangements they can do from that perspective that might help is that why sometimes when this is such a novice question but just thinking about it from a different perspective for me for a minute. Is it why sometimes like a weighted vest or, you know, the pressure and all of those conversations that we have, is that in some way also helping a child be more, you know, from a vestibular system or from a visuomotor perspective? I don't know, I'm probably using the wrong words, but like, does that kind of help them also? Do you know? I am not an OT, so I yeah. wouldn't be able to answer that probably as well as I wish I could, but there's maybe tons of biological stressors and tons of things that we aren't even in tune to from the lights to the sound, all that again, because it's just so hyper for them. And then they just are having trouble processing all of that. So they don't even have a sense of where they are in space. Yeah. So if you imagine just the act of putting them down, even if you're still, they're still right next to you, it's going to be like putting them into like the most chaotic scenario for them being safe and then being totally unsafe. Like there's no in between where that's where we need to figure out the next steps of how do we help their systems and really their attention and what they're thinking about be something different. That's what we do as special ed teachers is that we're trying to help that child learn that they can be okay on their own. They can still explore. There are accommodations can be made, like turning the lights down and doing those kinds of things or a weighted vest or whatever, but 
also not going zero to 60 with the child. So not just putting down or picking up, but maybe in smaller bits, changing what that kid's thinking about. So we often will do like, no, you're a big boy. You can stand by yourself. You know, those, we say those things, but those things are just still staying on that issue being hard. But even just the small shift of going, oh, I wonder, like, I can't reach that. Oh, that toy's so cool. I can't reach it while you're holding them. Then the child reaches it for you. Yeah. You've shifted that kid's mind and confidence because they've done something. And so little bits of, like, that's where I could probably go with a child like that is, how, how can I show you in small increments that you are capable of being able to orient and stay safe on your own? Yeah, that's a super clear example. So now that you said that, I was thinking they oftentimes one of the teachers described that the child would just lay their head on their shoulder and kind of whimper and cry. So where would you invite curiosity to that child? Would it be just to have some sort of like peekaboo? And I don't mean to be developmentally inappropriate like baby, but some sort of exchange that's with just you and the child to get their head lifted up, right? Like help me think about, because I love the idea of reaching for a toy, right? Yeah, I tend to go very nonchalant about things because in autism, one of the hardest things is social engagement. And so if you go straight for peekaboo, you're actually going for, (gasps) you're gonna raise anxiety of, oh my God, performance anxiety. They're, They're gonna ask that I do something in the middle of my feeling this overwhelm, right? But yes. if you just, so if a child has had their head on my shoulder, I might just stick something underneath like their hand. And mm. even if they were like a toy, even if they threw it away, they've taken action. Right, right. They've participated, if you will. So yeah. you're not talking, you're not making a request, you're not describing, you're not... You're creating ex- an obstacle, really. Okay. But to respond to, you're creating tension, if you, which is a in a developmental standpoint, you're bidding for them to take action of some sort. Like to grasp grasp something, even if they then release it by throwing it. Yep. And would you do that a couple of times? I'd try and get a few circles going to use some DIR floor time kind of thing. Right, Um, but you you, you don't want to just do it and he throws it and then you're like, that's done, right? Do a couple of those. Yep, I'd hand something else or I'd make it into something functional. So if it was throwing it, then I'd probably, okay, he's going to throw it. So I'd give him something that needed to be cleaned up at cleanup time. Oh, cool, you put it away, thank you. So you would comment at some, you wouldn't always stay quiet. At some point, I would probably start commenting to raise... I would depend on the child, so I'm glad you said that. To raise confidence, however, I would do that of like, oh, I'm proud of you, you know? So your intention is to help them feel confident in the expectation and then to give them some sort of feedback, whether it's a pat on the back or a verbalization or positive descriptor, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, Just that closing the loop again, that feedback. And assuming intent. Assuming intent. Because assuming they want to participate, even if they're throwing something, they just don't know how they're kind of stuck in a loop, whatever it is. And so shaping it into something that works. So like if it's throwing, shape it into something that throwing works. 
Right. Every one of my ideas want to go to social exchange. So I need you to keep bringing me back. So um, um, I do still want it to be social exchange very quickly because it's not that they can't. It's because it's just that that initial is going to be right. right. If we're trying to get off of the shoulder from crying, we don't go from right. zero to 60. Right. But it can be pretty quick. If, he, if the child responds to just a toy and then puts it away, but looks at you like, why did you do that? You've got a social exchange that came from them, like right. visually, you know, like you read the moment of when can I bring social exchange and then back up if it is too much. Because I was trying to think like maybe if they created some opportunities, and I know this is so hard in a classroom when you've got so many other children, but instead of just carrying the kid around, if they tried to have more interactions or even turn the child outward so that they... Mm-hmm. Like on their lap, but looking at others. I just didn't know if that was like two big steps that I was thinking of. I think that's totally going to depend on the child. So yeah. turning them around actually might help some children because it takes the performance anxiety off of the person who's holding them. Okay. But it's going to be harder to help that child actively participate with things. So you'd still want, that's the piece I'd still want to have in there, no matter what positioning you had of like slowly upping that child's active participation. So it might just be throwing once and then they have to reach to throw it into something and then they have to grab something to throw it in there. You know what I mean? So you're upping it every single time so that they're, and then they have to get up out of your lap to then go get something to then throw it in. Right. Or then, ooh, they're up and at them. Okay, and then some kids, it's so cool because some kids will just be like, oh, so now I'm okay. Let's go to circle. Doesn't always happen, but some kids it's just like they need that like, hey, no, really, I believe in you. You can do this. And they go, oh, okay. Would you think that it's mostly some sort of, that you're trying to get a cause and effect? Like, I'm just trying to scaffold this so that the teachers have a couple of ideas of what to do. So I understand, like, handing something that can be dropped or thrown, but are we looking for an object that could be shaken or... Again, it's going to depend on the child. So if you're talking ASD and four-year-old, the more closed-ended the activity, the better. So shaking something or if you push something and something else happens, that's going to have like a closed-ended thing. So sure, that would be great. Like push this button, something happens. Right. Yeah. But um, if it's just shake like a rattle or something like that, that's going to be harder. So a, a repeated pen. simple action is not as good as a closed-ended single action with an intended effect. Definitely. You put something in, it's done. You, put, you push something, something happens, it's done. So it could also be like putting something together and then it's okay. together. Like, you know, if you have Duplos. Like, and you yeah, like put are, one Lego on the other Lego and that's yep. enough. Yep. It's not just a reach and grasp. It could be put on, put yep. in, yep. push over, right? Yep. It's yeah. very much cause and effect, not the simple motor actions that are repeated. Yes. Yes. Got it. Okay. All so right. So it could be more successful. Yeah. And then there can be some verbal labeling, especially if it's closing the loop and giving them feedback that's telling them that that was the desired response, that they did it well, whatever. But just like you just said, you want them to understand that what they did they did well. Right. So it, one child, if you say, yippee, yay, you did such a good job. You helped, blah, blah, blah That's going to totally send them right. in. Like, that was a yeah. negative. That told them right. that, that they're never going to do that behavior again because I get yeah. that 
crazy big response. Crazy lady with the high fives and the kisses and the tickles yeah. and wow. I'm like, no, no, I will never do that again, I promise. <laughs> so some kid just a, like putting your hand on the back or even some kids is like, if you're quiet, that's yeah, the reward. <laughs> yeah, the reward is like, she shut up. Wow. <laughs> That's what my kids would be saying. Like, I got it. I'll do this again. Well, right. if you actually think about that, sorry, I'm going to say one more thing. If you think about yeah. that, really, that to me is best because then they're getting the intrinsic reward in the activity of yes, they didn't need participating instead of I have to have this extra somebody saying yay for me all the time. Yeah. And I think that just my last thing will be closing too is what you said before, like less talk to them about like encouraging, you can do this. You're not going to be anxious. I'm going to be right here. Like that's just not where we're at. That usually for autism and that age range is going to raise anxiety rather than lower it and keep the focus on the anxiety rather right. than I'm bringing the focus to something else that could happen if you move away from me. <laughs> right, right. So that they become curious about something yeah. behind your shoulder, not just being told that they can be a big boy and do it today. Yeah, so I love what you just said, actually, is like the whole goal will be, what are some ways to help them get curious about their surroundings? So soothe the nervous system, make yeah. the big bad world not so big, bad, and scary, and give them a reason to want to get off your shoulder. Yeah, exactly. Got it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Synergy Autism podcast. If you would like to learn more about Synergy Autism Center, check out our website at www.synergyautismcenter.com. Synergy is spelled S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y. And we are updating the podcast there as well. So you can find all the episodes there. Thank you.